Well, hello, and welcome to the Through the Word podcast, as pastors Chris Mitchell and John Bell seek to answer questions that come from the reading of God's Word, beginning in Genesis all the way through to Revelation. Thank you for joining us. Well, hello, I'm Pastor John Bell. And I'm Pastor Chris Mitchell. And this is the Through the Word podcast, where we seek to answer questions from the book of Genesis, all the way through Revelation, as we read through the Bible with our church family. And this week we are in the Psalms and starting out into the Proverbs. And so, Pastor Chris, if it's all right with you, do you want to get into some of those questions? Yes, we even get to go to Hebrews today. Oh, that's the right. The first question even goes all the way to Hebrews. That's right, we do. <laughs> We're getting close to Revelation. Right, right wow. <laughs> and I, I do believe that this is our halfway through the okay. year, official, wow. halfway through the year podcast. So yes, All right. you've thank, hung on this long. Yes. We thank you. <laughs> so this first question is: It's regarding Psalm one ten, and then ties that together with Hebrews seven three. And the question is: Is Melchizedek considered to be Christ? Well, Melchizedek is definitely an interesting figure. Yes, uh, as you see him, brilliant scholars <clears throat> have landed on both sides of the question. Okay. Some saying, yes, Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate Christ. Okay. Others say that he's basically a pointer to Christ, but not Christ himself. And so I am, in my opinion, okay. that's just what we're going on here, I'm going to lean toward favoring Melchizedek as one meant to point to Christ. Okay. Uh, our listener that brought this question to us mentioned Psalm 110 and Hebrews 7, the only other place that Melchizedek is mentioned is in uh, Genesis 14. Yes. That's where the Abraham uh, and Melchizedek have an encounter. So when you get to Hebrews 7, <clears throat> the author there is making the point that the promise of Psalm 110 verse 4 mm-hmm. was fulfilled only in Christ. And so the scholars that I'm kind of leaning toward make the following points uh, regarding Melchizedek. First... There are terms of comparison used in the Hebrew text. Okay. Um, and and that and analogy, not just comparison, but an analogy used of Melchizedek, where Hebrews says he resembles the Son of God. Now, a comparison of the Son with himself would be sort of odd. Yes. Yeah. You know, just considering that. <clears throat> Second, in Genesis, Melchizedek is presented as one with a specific recognized political position. You know, he was the king of king, Salem. Right. Um, some would say that Jerusalem, that's just how they called it back then. Okay. Um, yet any theophanies in the Old Testament are often brief, mm-hmm. and they're exceptional. Yes. And, and, and they're not, like, have some political power or, or position like Melchizedek apparently does. He's right. this king of Salem. Um, third, most figures in Genesis are situated in a genealogical line, but Melchizedek isn't. He's described without ancestors or children. Okay. There's no notice of his birth or death, which was supposed to be another pointer, yes. a prophetic picture of Christ. Christ was superior to the Levitical priests. Their office and authority was transmitted through descent and inheritance and they couldn't give permanent free access to God. Right. But Christ, yes. who is a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek, who Melchizedek okay. didn't have ancestry and, and right. all of that, who wasn't a Levitical priest. Yes. So Christ is a priest forever, mm-hmm. the text says, 
after the order of Melchizedek, not the order of Levitical priests, and could offer what the Levitical priests could not. Okay. And that was permanent access to the God of the universe through his once and for all sacrifice on the cross. So for me, Melchizedek was a type of Christ. Okay. He yes. was a priest and king, but Christ was superior because he could combine the office of priest, king, and prophet. Yes. So Melchizedek, similar to Christ in that universal priesthood, he was royal. Right. He was righteous. He was peaceful, and he was unending. Yes. But he wasn't Christ. No. And Christ's kingship is of the universe. Right. All creation. Absolutely. Not he, just one particular yes. place or region. He's the prince of peace. Yes. yes. <laughs> King of Salem, as Salem would imply in peace. Absolutely. But thank you for answering that question. And the psalmist, this is our next question. And it, it has to do with just basically, well, hatred, it seems like. The psalmist writes that he hates those who hate the Lord. He, he loathes them. He hates them with complete hatred. And the question is, that's a lot of hatred. I mean, <laughs> the question is, is this hatred not a sin? I mean, Jesus said to love our enemies, and wouldn't that include this psalmist too, or these people as well? Well, as we like to say around here, context is key. Yes. So when we consider what David is saying in these verses, we need to make sure we're not just ripping out this part from the rest of the psalm and throwing darts at it. Sure. You know, verses 1 through 18 are meant for us to see the wonder of God's world. Okay. Only to move to verses 19 and 20, where David is describing the wicked. Uh, he's describing those who are opposed to God's ways, those who are really kind of destroying Yahweh's world. And so he talks about them there in, you know, starting in 19, oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God, oh, men of blood. These are men of blood. They're evil in their actions and their words. And so this is Psalm 140. 139. 139, right. Yeah, 139. Um, and, and they use the name of God for false and deceptive purposes. So see, it says... Um, down there, they speak against you with malicious intent. So notice over and over again, this isn't personal toward David in the sense that these attacks aren't coming toward him. Yes. They're, they're attacks that are being directed toward God. So we need to make sure we understand that. <clears throat> and the men hate the Lord. They're completely rebellious toward his ways. And so what we could say here is that David is taking up God's offense. Hmm. He's claiming that these men are his enemy because they're God's enemy. And so therefore, he hates them with complete or extreme hatred. It's part of his zeal yes. for Yahweh. And Yahweh has a right to wrath at the effects of sin. So here's what we can't miss. Hate in this context means to reject and oppose. Okay. So sure, this is an emotional appeal. He's asking God to deal with the wicked whom he rejects and opposes. Now, I thought uh, this from John Piper would be very helpful considering this. <clears throat> he says, There is a kind of hate for the sinner that may coexist with pity and even a desire for their salvation. Uh, he gives this example. You may hate spinach without opposing its good use. But there may come a point when wickedness is so persistent and high-handed and God despising, 
that the time of redemption is past and there only remain irremediable wickedness and judgment. So we will grant to the psalmist, usually David, speaking under the guidance of the Holy Spirit as the foreshadowed Messiah and judge, the right to call down judgment on the enemies of God. Mm. This isn't personal vindictiveness. It's a prophetic execution of what will happen at the last day when God casts all his enemies into the lake of fire. So we would do well to leave such final assessments to God. Okay. Realize our own corrupt inability to hate as we ought. And so let us tremble and trust God lest we fail yes. and find ourselves on the other side of this curse. But, but here's what's so interesting. David understands by the time he gets to the end of the psalm, he wants God to, to, to search him out. Look at verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. So David gets to the point where he's like, look, make sure there isn't any wicked way in me, God. Yes. I'll let I mean, you your... Oh, go ahead. No, that's right. I mean, he's not just trying to look at somebody else without wanting to search out himself. Right. And his hatred isn't, oh, I hate them because they're such terrible people and all oh, they've done all this to me. It's, uh, I want, God, they have rejected and opposed you. And so no. I want what you want. I want your zeal for righteousness to be my zeal for righteousness. Um, you know, I think Alec Motyer sums it up well when he says, if we could match the spirituality of verses 1 through 18, we would be in a better position to judge the morality of verses 19 through 24. But to side with Yahweh is to identify with the totality of his ways. Um, so, yeah, it, it doesn't undo where Jesus says, love your enemy. No. This isn't, that's not what's happening here. Well, thank you. That's, those are wise words. And, and just pardon the pun there, because we're going to move to the book <laughs> of Proverbs. And so the question is for regarding as we're getting started in this, this is, you know, helping and direct how to read it. Mm-hmm. How much of the book of Proverbs should we take literally? Well, do you mean like Proverbs twenty six twenty seven that says, whoever digs a pit will fall into it? You know, because yes. people dig pits all the time and they don't fall into them. Yes, our one that I use when I don't want to run like, you know, a fool is one who runs when no one's chasing him. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I will say... Um, my friend Michael and I were trying to build an underground fort one day when I was in the sixth grade and I did fall into it. Oh no. Yeah. And I still have the scar to prove it. So maybe there is something about falling into pits. There might be. But what you're asking is that if this is normative, you know, like if we can expect a stone that we start rolling to roll back on us. And I'm going to say that's not how we interpret the Proverbs. But first we need to have some context. Okay. Most of the book was written by King Solomon in what appears to be instruction to his son on how to be a man. And the Proverbs are full of the wisdom of a man who is given much wisdom. Obviously, he experienced lots in his life, and he wants to make sure that the next generation knows about it. So while lots of themes are addressed in this book, the overall structure or the overall central theme seems to be about wisdom. Okay. Now, yesterday, you and I were talking about the overall structure of the book of Proverbs, and you mentioned how the parts do seem to kind of fit, uh, at least in the beginning, like a letter from father to son. So I just wanted to know if you would please maybe elaborate on that conversation with our listeners. Sure, and and I can't take... I mean, some of this is from Tim Mackey and the Bible Project and some of their work there, or Landon McDonald. But tying those together, Mm -hmm. um, the layout's like the first 
uh, nine chapters are a letter to a son or their 10 com- composed speeches from a father to a son. Mm-hmm. And the, the general view within those is a life for God versus a life against God's ways. And so you have these mm-hmm. two paths in which the young man can take. And then you know, there's a dive into, okay, wisdom is going to show you a life for God. And so this is a collection of, I like the way that he described this and, and how you you would think Solomon and his wisdom, and this is projecting a little bit on there, Solomon and his wisdom and the amount of study that he would put in would be years and generations of previous wisdom. And so you can think of hmm. chapters 10 through 29, this combination of all this wisdom that's been collected throughout the ages mm-hmm. and that it's wisdom that it's pointing to this a life for God versus a life against God's ways. And so you have this letter to a son and then a way to live general principles sure. that tend to be true in life. And from chapters 10 to 29 and then chapter 30, you get into this Agur who gives a picture of how to read the book of Proverbs or even God's word. And then he even he, he presents a picture of, of Jesus, you know, someone who's come down to earth and been to heaven. And, and so you mm-hmm. see this picture of Jesus. And I love what he said here, because when we think about wisdom, we think about Jesus, it's the wisdom of God lived to perfection. That's who Jesus is. Yeah. He is the wisdom of God That's lived to perfection. Definition. And if you see even in verse 35, it says every word of God is flawless. And so the wisdom of God lived to perfection is lived out in Jesus. Mm-hmm. And you, so you have all this great combination of wisdom for a son, and then, it's, and then it has this point where, okay, this is who you want to live your life with. with the, as you search out this wisdom, as it's you know, a woman of noble character is mm-hmm. how you know, it finishes out. And so you begin the letter with speeches to a son. You give examples of the generations of wisdom. Shows a picture of wisdom of the one coming, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who's coming again. And then it finishes with a young man who he needs to seek out and grow in wisdom with. So it's a beautiful picture. And young ladies yeah, can, yeah. can take it as well. It's not just for men. And sure. it's one that a wisdom that lives throughout the ages because it is. It's a collection of great wisdom and gives us a picture of how a wise person will follow after God. Mm. Yeah, well, thank you. Uh, you know, knowing that overall structure helps us see how the theme of wisdom does point us ultimately to an all-wise King Jesus. Yes. So that's, that's great. Um, you know, reading Proverbs can be a bit of a challenge, uh, even potentially dangerous if we read them incorrectly. So I wanted to share, just as we wrap up our time today, seven clues that might help us Sure. As we read through the book of Proverbs. And these are uh, from a sermon that Mark Dever preached entitled Proverbs, Wisdom for the Ambitions. So I'll just, uh, you know, he obviously elaborates on them. If you're interested in that, you can uh, come see me and I'll be glad to share the book sure. so that you can go deeper. But <clears throat> here's what he said, or just briefly, those seven things. Number one, common sense is required. Right. I mean, the sayings are useful for indicating what is generally true. Right. Um, So you do need some common sense there. Uh, Number two, individual proverbs are always ultimately true. 
So when someone looks at Proverbs 16, 7, for instance, and says, wait, that didn't happen to Jesus, we should know that while it may not be so yet, one day Jesus' enemies will be at peace with him. Hmm. Uh, every knee will bow yes. one day. And so we just need to keep in mind that individual Proverbs are ultimately true, always. Okay. Uh, third, individual Proverbs are normally true now. So the Proverbs uh, aren't to exhaust a topic, Right. But they're to teach a lesson in a memorable way right now. Okay. So look before you leap. Yes. I mean, that's just a normal, you know, kind of idea. It doesn't give any exhaustive direction about, well, leap on one foot. Or you should right. always leap on your starting foot or your left right. foot. That, it's not exhaustive. But it does, it, it is normally true now. Uh, number four, individual proverbs employ poetic imagery. Yes. So I guess the ultimate answer to your question is no. Okay. When you asked from the beginning. <laughs> sorry, this is a long way no, that's all right. to answer your question. Um, but they do employ poetic imagery. Number five, individual proverbs are partial in themselves. So each one typically tries to capture one basic idea. Individual proverbs aren't spiritual coupons okay. that we can clip out and apply however we want. All that's said about a particular topic must be considered. Okay. So we have to take the whole. Um, number six, individual proverbs are sometimes obscure. We don't live in the cultural background of 3,000 or so years ago when these were written. Right. And so you might stumble on some of these that are really weird. Um, and that's, you know, okay, seek a commentary. Sure. Uh, yeah. Or a trusted Bible teacher to kind of help you. Think through that. Or send your questions in to through the word <laughs> yeah. 22 and Pastor John will be glad to answer <laughs> that for you. Uh, and finally, as a whole, the Proverbs are religious. What yes. I mean by that is they aren't merely about worldly things like okay. early to bed, early to rise. It really is a book about our lives before God. Um, it's, a, it's about the fact that the good life can only be found in wisdom about God and about ourselves. Yes. But if you ask me, early to bed, early to rise is a great way to order your life. It is. Coming from a morning person like myself. Sure. <laughs> it, it, it is a good way. But, you know, and no offense to anybody that's an evening no, person. No, I'm sure. We, Lots of night yeah. people on here. We love you too. Yes, we do. Thank you guys all for listening and hope to talk to you soon. And God bless you. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us today on the Through the Word podcast. If you have any questions for us, please send those in to throughtheword22 at gmail.com. That's through the word and the number 22 at gmail.com. God bless you. Have a great day.